5. 1 John chapter 5. Reading this chapter in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 12, which introduces the name Christ. We hear the inspired, infallible word of our God. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments And his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is true. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God, and life, and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Beloved in our Lord, we hear the word of God. 
On the basis of that which we read, as well as many other passages to which we'll make reference, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 12, question and answers 31 and 32. We find that in the back of our Psalters on page 8. Question 31. Why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption and to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. And also to be our eternal King, who governs us by His Word and Spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation He has purchased for us. Question 32, but why art thou called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus am partaker of His anointing, that so I may confess His name and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life, and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That's the question with which we are confronted this morning. Do you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God? That's what the name Christ designates, Anointed One. This Lord's Day explains how Jesus came to be that only and exclusive Savior of whom Lord's Day 11 spoke. The name Jesus revealing the fact that Jesus is the only complete Savior. How could that be? And now we have Lord's Day 12 explaining that was possible because God had ordained and equipped him unto this important work. He was ordained from all eternity to be God's official representative, God's office bearer. An office bearer is God's friend servant, authorized to function on God's behalf as his visible representative in the midst of the world. Adam was created as such and failed. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of Adam. Now the name anointed one describes two important things about the Messiah. First of all, he was foreordained to office. From eternity, God chose Christ to be the Messiah, the Messiah King, to be prophet, priest, and king. Hebrews 5 verse 5 makes clear that wasn't just Jesus' designation of himself. This was God's work. God called him. God ordained him. And God set him in that office at the time of baptism, ordaining him calling him officially and placing him now in that important position. 
But secondly, then God also qualified him for that labor. And you children remember how God did that at the occasion of baptism. That dove came down. And as that dove lighted on Jesus' shoulder, it was a picture of the Holy Spirit equipping the one whom God had chosen. God's word had designated his choice. This is my only begotten son in whom I am well pleased. And then the dove as a picture of God equipping him for this labor. God uniting two natures, a human and a divine, in the one person of the divine person of the Son of God. And that anointing then by the Spirit, equipping him for the work. The Spirit of the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Now the Catechism comes at this name from the viewpoint of how Christ affects my comfort and my salvation. As always, the Catechism is subjective, looking at all of the various aspects from the perspective of my benefit, my encouragement. And notice how many times throughout the Catechism, us is referenced in that regard. He's ordained to be our chief prophet and preacher who will reveal to us, our high priest, and so on. What is it for us to understand Christ as anointed? It's to know that God sent him, officially choosing him and equipping him for our benefit and for our salvation. Now the name Christ is emphasized repeatedly throughout the Bible. And we'll make reference to many of those references. In 1 John 5, 1, we read, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That Jesus is not just a historical man that lived on earth, but that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah sent by God as our mediator for our salvation. When asked by the disciples whom they thought Jesus was, you remember, Peter rose up and Peter gave the confession that's found in Matthew 16, verses 16 and following, that thou art the Christ, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And God's response to Peter was, upon the rock of this confession, this truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, His church is established. The whole epistle to Peter has as its theme, Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah, the high priest. And throughout the entire epistle of the Hebrews, we find that emphasis. Especially that he's a high priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. God not only gave his son a glorious title and name, but God works faith in our hearts by which we believe that he is that anointed one, that Messiah. And we lay hold by a true and living faith to Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. Confessing Christ, we confess our union with Him. And that union with Christ is a marvelous wonder. The Apostle spoke of it at the conclusion of chapter 5 here. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. We are in Him. We are joined to Him. 
by an unbreakable bond. And knowing that union with Christ, we identify ourselves with him as Christians. The catechism continues. What does it mean to be a Christian? That wonder that I confess I'm not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that bond is my hope and my joy. We look at that. I believe in Christ, the anointed. Noting, first of all, prophet, secondly, priest, and finally, king. Going through the catechism as it's set forth here in the threefold office that our Lord occupies. And then noting in each instance the application of it to us as prophet, priest, and king in Christ. First of all, he is our chief prophet and teacher. He functioned in the old dispensation through the prophets of the Old Testament. So that already in the Old Testament, Jesus was present as that teacher, as that prophet. Now what is it, what characterizes the ministry of a prophet? At least four things. As we study the prophets and as we look at their ministry, first of all, they received immediate revelation from God concerning divine mysteries. And sometimes it was even things they couldn't fully understand themselves. They had to go back and study it and dig into it in order to try to understand it. Secondly, they were to proclaim that word that God gave them. They weren't to keep silent about it, but God gave them that revelation and that revelation boiled up within them so that they now were compelled to go speak to others concerning that which had been told them. Even when it was hard, it was difficult. When Samuel had to go tell Eli that God had ordained that Eli's sons would die. Yet, given that revelation from God, the prophet was compelled to speak. Thirdly, the prophets, because they received that revelation from God, were able able to foretell future events. God gave them insights into the future, especially containing the coming of the Messiah and the wonder of his plan and the various events that would take place. And so God giving to the prophets insights into where he would be born, how he would be born, and all of the various aspects of his life, so that the prophets were foretelling events that were in the future. And finally, often God gave to those prophets the ability to confirm their prophecy by miracles and wonders, so that They performed wonders, giving evidence and confirming the fact that what they were speaking was not merely their own word. This was the divine word of God. Now God stirred up these men, filling them with his word so that they could not keep it within them, but that they were overflowing then in their walk and their conduct as they walked and lived among God's people. The prophet spoke words of warning. God giving him to see the judgments that were to take place, warning the people, leaving them without an excuse for their continued walk in sin. The prophet was called to speak words of salvation, words of hope, directing them to the cross and the wonder of the coming of the Messiah, that their sins would be forgiven and that through him there would be deliverance. The prophets taught, the prophets instructed in God's will and God's ways. Now, those prophets were not operating by their own strength. Already in the Old Testament, 
Jesus was the power. He was the spirit that was functioning through those prophets from the very beginning. And Deuteronomy 18, verse 5, talks about that. Deuteronomy 18, a striking passage that speaks of the fact that God would raise up prophets and how the people would be able to discern whether the prophet was a true prophet or a false prophet based on whether the words that he spoke came to pass. But then God speaking of the fact that he would raise up one who would be the prophet. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Now Jesus, in his ministry, makes reference again and again to the fact that he is speaking the words of his Father. And that he's faithful as an ambassador of his Father. Jesus made reference again and again also to the fact that he was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And especially that came out in Luke 4, verse 21, when Jesus had returned to Nazareth again. And you remember that history. A scroll was pulled out. Isaiah 61 was on the foreground. And Isaiah 61 clearly spoke of the wonder by which the Messiah would come, who would be the one who would bring marvelous wonders, would throw open the gates of the prisons, and would free those that had been in bondage. That scroll is read. And Jesus afterward states, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. I am that promised Messiah. And specifically, in verse 24, he makes reference to the fact that he is a prophet. He came as a prophet to proclaim those words that God had ordained. And so Jesus took that up personally while he was on earth. While he was on earth, he functioned as prophet as teacher. The catechism states, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Jesus came as the prophet the one who knew the will of his heavenly Father and came now to make known that will to his people. He didn't preach a new doctrine. He didn't come with a new law. He came with that which was the will of his Father. Not directing men to a new way to heaven. He was fulfilling. He was confirming that which previously had been written concerning the way of salvation. Matthew 5, verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And as Jesus did so, he conducted himself perfectly in connection with the law, maintaining that law as no man ever had done. And likewise, proclaiming then the gospel as a prophet, as that gospel came to those who knew they could not keep the law, they could not stand for a moment, and he proclaimed himself as the Christ, the object of that gospel, the one who fulfilled righteousness for God's children. So that that gospel is called the gospel of Christ in Romans 1, verse 16. And how did Jesus confirm it? By miracles and wonders. 
So that if people wondered, is this truly the gospel? Is this the truth? It was evident. Not only did this man come with power, not only with his words, with authority, but they were confirmed with miracles and with wonders and signs. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Acts 2, verse 22. Now after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension... He continues this work as prophet. The book of Acts speaks of the work that Christ continued to do through his apostles, through preachers, through teachers. So that we read in Acts in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of of the body of Christ. And since they're his messengers, they preach in his name. And the Lord requires then that we hear them, even as him. He that heareth you, heareth me. He that despiseth you, despiseth me, Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 16. Now we can talk about Jesus' prophetic work in terms of external aspects and internal aspects. From an external perspective, Jesus functions then as prophet through his written, through the printed, through the preached word of God. And that word goes forth in all of its power. Many attributes are used in the scriptures to define that word. It comes as a rock, that which is powerful, that which crushes, that which exposes and lays bare one's sin. Romans 10 verse 18 speaks of the fact that no one can be saved apart from hearing the words of Christ. How shall they believe him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Christ now sounds forth his word through his servants, so that even as he stated in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. And he makes reference to the fact there that there are some that are not of this fold. That is, they're Gentiles. They too will hear my voice. How is it that all God's children hear his voice? Because his voice comes now through his servants, whom he calls and commissions to preach his word. That gospel then is proclaimed throughout all of the nations to whom God in his good pleasure is pleased to proclaim it. Many nations and peoples are deprived of that word. They don't experience salvation according to God's sovereign determination. To others, Christ sends forth his servants so that the gospel comes. They hear that word and they receive it with joy and with thankfulness. Others reject it. They hear it. They turn their back on Christ. That's the external aspect of his work as a prophet. As his word goes forth within the congregation... As some receive it, others do not. goes forth on the mission field. But there's also an internal aspect to that work. Christ illuminates by his marvelous power. First Peter 2 verse 9 talks about that wonder by which he works regeneration. He works in the hearts of his own. So that not only does the word come... But then Christ accompanies that word in the hearts of his children now by stirring them up 
by causing their hearts to burn within them. And we think of the travelers on the road to Damascus, or to Emmaus. They were traveling on the road to Emmaus. All of a sudden, Jesus is in their midst. They were perplexed about all the events of the resurrection. And as Jesus talks to them, and as he speaks to them, what do we read? Their hearts began to burn within them. It wasn't just an external work that God was working. It was an internal work by which he was working in them the faith to believe and to understand and to lay hold upon Christ as their Lord and their Savior. There's a difference between Christ and all earthly prophets in that regard. All earthly prophets are merely sinful men. They don't give authority to the word that they speak. They don't bring that word forth of themselves. They're only able to make it known to the external ear. Whereas Christ comes with divine authority and power. He's able to take that word and penetrate now the hard, hardened hearts of sinful, elect men and women. Penetrating them. In such a way that now their hearts are stirred within them. Their sin is exposed. And they cry out for mercy. He who had the zeal of the Lord's house devouring him. Is the one who is able to work that zeal in the hearts of his own. And so he preaches. He sounds forth his word not only. But he accompanies it with his spirit. And that spirit working in the hearts of men to turn them to him and to bind them to him by a true and living faith so that they're convicted and so that the cross becomes their hope and their joy alone. They know their sin. They know their unworthiness. And they're drawn to see the wonder of his sacrifice. He stood in our place. He took upon himself what we deserved. And now we live in him. With that power, our Lord spoke and continues to speak. With that power, He silences the enemies. With that power, He preaches to the heart, illuminating, warming, converting, sanctifying, baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The difference isn't in the Word. The difference isn't in the person who hears it. The power of Christ applying it is what causes the difference. And so, beloved, we rejoice in the wonder that Jesus Christ is our prophet. And we rejoice in the word that he speaks to us, a word that comes with power and with authority, not just externally, but internally stirring us up to the depths of our being in the joy of our salvation and the hope of life everlasting. Now, out of that flows especially two admonitions. First of all, Listen to the prophet. You and I must confess our ignorance by nature. We must confess our need for the knowledge that this prophet, Jesus Christ, alone is able to give. And we pay attention when the prophet speaks to us. We search the scriptures to know his will, to know the way that he would have us to go. And with joy we seek to pursue His will and way. We pay attention when the prophet speaks. The word that comes through the preaching isn't just Reverend Brummel, Reverend Lanning, Reverend Halsteg. 
It's the word of Christ. This is Jesus Christ bringing his word in all of its power to the hearts of his children. And the power of the preaching is the prophet who comes with his word to make known his love for me. This is the word of salvation. And therefore, we listen and we obey. But secondly, flowing out of that is the wonder by which we're called Christians. And as Christians who take upon ourselves the name of Christ then, this means for us that we are to live faithfully as those who are prophets of God in Jesus Christ. The Catechism speaks of that, that I that so I may confess His name. By the mercy of Jehovah God, our hearts are opened. And we are given the ability to know the truth, to love it, and to speak it. Having been taught by the prophet, we are joined with His anointing. And we are united to Him by a true and living faith. Moses at one time expressed in Numbers 11, verse 29, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets. That's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We are prophets in Him. We know the truth, we love it, and we desire to live it. And even as we spoke concerning a prophet, a prophet then is one now who can't keep quiet about the mysteries and the wonders that God has made known unto him. The prophet is one who knows God's will with regard to the future. He knows that Christ is coming again. And that's not a truth that can be kept to ourselves. Men, women must be warned. Christ is coming again. You cannot continue in your sin and expect that you will stand before the judge of heaven and earth. He's coming again. And we need to repent. And we need to turn to Him. There's growth, there's development as prophets, receiving the word of God with thanksgiving, studying the scriptures, growing in our devotion to him. There's a willingness to confess Christ before men and before God. There's a promoting of the church, promoting the building up, the gathering of the church. And the work of a prophet is instrumental in that regard. Primarily the preacher the missionary as the prophet of God, but also individual members of the congregation as we admonish one another, as God works in us the grace by which we're speaking the truth in love, instructing, warning, comforting, exhorting. And we do so out of Christ. Am I worthy? Are you worthy? No. But our worthiness is not found in self, it's found in the wonder by which we're united to Him. And as living members of Christ, we live out of Him. Within the position in which He has placed us. A minister is going to live as a prophet in a different way, and in a different context than a member of the congregation. But God gives each of His children the ability and the grace to be prophets in those positions in which He has placed us. That I may confess His name. But then secondly, beloved, we look at Christ as the priest, to be our only high priest. Jesus again functioned in the Old Testament 
through the priests. The priests were men that were chosen by God to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Hebrews 5 verse 1. The priests brought those sacrifices, they brought those prayers to God. And they did so on behalf of the people, recognizing there was a need for a mediator. There's the holy and righteous God, and there's sinful people. And there was a need for one who would stand between the people and God. They did so pointing to the priest who would come. Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, what does it mean that he was after the order of Melchizedek? That's significant. Two things especially. That he was not just a priest, but a prophet and a king. So prophet, priest, and king. That was Melchizedek. And secondly, it's not just a temporary priesthood, as was Aaron's. It's an eternal priesthood. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus ordained then as the priest of God. All the priests in the Old Testament types pointing to Christ, the embodiment of the priesthood. Now, how did Jesus show himself as priest and how does he continue to do so today? The Catechism references who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. He offered himself as the sacrifice for our sin. That was the great need. A sinful people required to make payment to the almighty, holy, and righteous God for their sin. How could they ever do so? Jesus came and did what we could never do. He made the perfect sacrifice, the perfect atonement, a sacrifice of perfect obedience on behalf of those whom the Father had given him. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, verse 12. He sacrificed himself as the high priest. And what did he accomplish? He brings about eternal redemption. And then he entered into the sanctuary on the base of his own blood. This work that he accomplished was perfect. The work that he accomplished was complete. And again, that ties into Lord's Day 11. How is it that Jesus can be our complete only Savior? Because he's the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who accomplished that which no man could ever do as our high priest perfectly. And his sacrifice accomplishes the salvation of his people. We talk about that sacrifice being in our place. It was substitutionary. So that God received the sacrifice of Christ as in the place of your and my sacrifice. It was voluntary. He didn't need to do it. He wasn't compelled. He did it out of love for you and for me. And as such, we then stand before the living God as those whose sins are fully paid for. Atonement has been accomplished. Our redemption has been made. The payment has been made. The second element of his work as priest is making intercession. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. 
Hebrews 5, verse 7. What are the matters for which he makes intercession on our behalf? The scriptures talk about the fact that everything that we need in this life in order to walk the way that leads to heaven. You know how needy you are. I know how needy I am. We have a high priest who knows the feeling of our infirmities. He knows your struggles. He knows the battles in which you find yourself. He knows the trials and the temptations that you face. And he's praying for you. What a beautiful truth. He's praying prayers that are perfect. He knows what you need, what I need, even better than we. We stutter, we stammer some selfish prayers often that aren't in accordance with God's will as they ought be. We have an high priest who's offering perfect petitions on our behalf who will be heard before the throne of God. Everything necessary that we might know and live in the enjoyment of our salvation now and to all eternity. That's what Jesus himself stated in John 17, verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. He's praying for you and for me in order that we be brought to the fullness of bliss with him. And again, we're united to him. That's the wonder. We're in Him. And now He's preserving and keeping us. And He's bringing us to the joy of unspeakable bliss and union with Him in the new Jerusalem. Hebrews 7 verse 25, Wherefore He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. I'm weak, you're weak. In a moment, we would mess our lives up and we would give prey to the devil. But Jehovah is faithful. And he gives to us a Savior who is able to save to the uttermost those whom the Father has given him. This is our preservation. This is our perseverance. The fact that he preserves and keeps us so that we will persevere. And he is doing so by continual intercessions. Jesus had to earn salvation in order that he might apply it to us and make us partakers of it. Now, how does he make that intercession? First of all, he stands before the Father. Not merely as our friend speaking on our behalf and speaking good things of us. He stands as our surety. He stands as the one who's accomplished our salvation. And he stands as the Son of God, equal with the Father, according to his divinity. And secondly, Jesus does not fall on his knees with strong crying and tears as he did in the days of his humiliation. Now he stands with boldness, demonstrating the power of his suffering and the wonder of his death. Third, he demands of the Father the fulfillment of all of the promises of the covenant now and to all eternity for those whom the Father gave him. And he pleads the cause of the elect over against all the accusations brought against them by the devil and by their enemies. And he presents then our prayers as offered up in his name and purified by his Spirit. This is the intercession. 
verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. He works in us the grace to pray, thy will be done. To pray a prayer in accordance with his will. And his intercession is all-powerful, accomplishing the peace, accomplishing the answers that are necessary for us. Prayer is hard. There are times we struggle. It doesn't seem as though our prayers are being heard. And then it doesn't seem like our prayers are being answered in the manner in which we would desire. And we're brought to our knees to see that our prayers perhaps are not being prayed in accordance with God's will. We're praying for our will rather to be done. It's an insult to Christ to claim that His demands are not being met or that He's not sufficient as our mediator or that He's not the one that sufficiently answers our prayers. Belgic Confession in Article 26 beautifully lays out the wonder and the joy of the Christian in knowing that we have Jesus Christ as our intercessor. And this was written by the fathers over against the attempts of the Roman Catholics to say, Jesus isn't enough. We need Mary. We want the saints instead. And having the saints and Mary and Jesus, then we would be able to have comfort and peace. Notice the beautiful words of Article 26. For there is no creature either in heaven or on earth who loveth us more than Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, yet made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a man and of a servant for us and was made like unto his brethren in all things. If then we should seek for another mediator who would be well affected toward us, whom could we find? who loved us more than he who laid down his life for us, even when we were his enemies. And if we seek for one who hath power and majesty, who is there that hath so much of both as he who sits at the right hand of his Father and who hath put all power in heaven and on earth? And who will sooner be heard than the own well-beloved Son of God? What a mediator God gives us. And his continued priesthood means for us then two things. He's constantly making prayer on behalf of others. And he's pronouncing his blessing upon us on the basis of God's covenant faithfulness. What does it mean then that we are partakers of his anointing as priests? We call ourselves Christians. First of all, we are to make use of this priesthood by faith. That is, we go to God through Jesus Christ, knowing our sins, knowing the burden of our sin, feeling that burden. We cry out to God, and we do so through Jesus Christ, casting all our cares on our high priest who knows the feelings of our infirmities, that he might bring them before the altar, and so that we can be assured of forgiveness. Christ calls sinners, come to me. Cast your burdens upon me. And he works in us the wonder by which we are drawn to him. 
we cry out for mercy. And we do so in the confidence that He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the payment. He's the covering of our sins. God will no longer use our sins against us. Jesus Christ has paid the price. 1 John 2, verse 2. And He is the Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, verse 6. He alone is able to give us peace and comfort through His atoning sacrifice. But secondly, we live out of that priesthood then that Christ purchased for us. The Catechism says, presenting myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him. Continually in the service of our Lord as the priests of old, devoted to Him. We who have been chosen and qualified are those who now live in His service. We're not living to save ourselves. We're not living selfishly for our own endeavors. We're living unto Him. And as those now who are living unto Him, our lives then are living sacrifices of gratitude and thankfulness. We turn away from the earthly. We turn away from our own will. And we pray, Thy will be done. And through prayer and devotion to God, we seek His will. We direct our minds toward the things that are heavenly, the things that are good, the things that are right, the things with which God is well pleased. We live unto Him. And as we stand in God's service, we seek to do so in the whole of our lives. With one's head, one's heart, with the whole of one's actions and conduct. Confessing that our Lord Jesus Christ is the one for whom we live. He is our Lord and the one to whom we owe our all. And so with joy, with thankfulness, we don't count God's commandments grievous. We count them a joy. We count them a blessing. And as such, we live then unto Him in joy and thankfulness. Again, the catechism, or the passage that we read in 1 John 5, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. Therefore, us a delight as redeemed children of God who are prophets and priests and kings unto Him. Living out of that, we then mortify that old man through prayer, through devotion to God. We sacrifice of our goods for the sake of the poor. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. We heed the words of Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable sacrifice. Our bodies are Christ's. And so we bring our eyes, we bring our hands, we bring the whole of our being into subservience to Him and to His will. Finally, we look at Christ the King. Christ rules in power, in grace, and in glory to be our eternal King, the Catechism says. Now, first of all, His kingdom is a kingdom of power over all things. Secondly, it's a kingdom of grace. A kingdom of mercy. As king over all, the whole creation, all mankind, Christ executes power and dominion due to his majesty and his greatness and his glory. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, 
and thou art exalted as head above all. First Chronicles 29, verse 11. Christ rules everything. He holds the hearts of the kings in his hand. He exalts, he humbles. According to his sovereign decree of providence, he's guiding everything that's taking place in the whole of the universe. Christ exercised that rule in the Old Testament through kings. He was again the king to which they all pointed. For he is the king of glory, we read in Psalm 24, verse 10. But his kingdom is not merely of power and majesty, it's a kingdom of grace over his people who rules by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. God is a special, peculiar people living in the midst of the world whom he rules in a special manner by his grace and in love. He rules them as mediator, as savior, so that no one can trample them underfoot, so that no one can destroy them, and so that they are kept and preserved by him to all eternity. That's you, beloved. That's me by God's grace. The church has a keeper. She has a king. A king who dwells with her and in her by the power of his spirit. And Christ is gathering his church. He's drawing her out of the powers of darkness, translating her into the joy and wonder of his kingdom. He's protecting her. He's keeping her. And he's governed her by his word and spirit. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. Isaiah 33, verse 22. Christ became king in the way of his sacrifice as a priest. Now that's mind-boggling from a human perspective. Jesus became king by giving his life as the sacrifice for sin. Ordinarily, a king demonstrates his rule and takes on citizens by conquering the land and by bringing them under his power and his dominion. Jesus accomplished the wonder of preserving and gathering his church by his death on the cross, sealing and confirming the salvation of all those whom the Father had given them, bringing them into the enjoyment and wonder of that everlasting kingdom and making them living citizens of that kingdom. We call ourselves Christians. And as Christians, we also know the wonder of that kingly rule. What is our calling in that regard? First, we're to acknowledge him as our Lord and King. And since he's our King, we acknowledge that he's the one who rules every aspect of our lives. I'm not my own. I belong to him. And I submit to him in every area of life. Willingly bowing before him in all things, honoring him in all things. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Revelation 5, verse 13. Every aspect of my life is to be lived in submission to his will. I can't compartmentalize my life and think that I can live as a Christian on Sunday. I can live as a Christian in this area of my life and then leave open to the devil all of these other areas. Christ is my Lord. And I pray for the grace 
to submit to Him in everything and in all things. That He would expose sin in my life. That He would show me the way that I am to go. And we delight in Him. We love Him. Beloved, where this love for Christ is evident, there will be light and there will be life. There will be obedience. There will be a delight in Him. There will be a trusting in Him, a looking to Him for strength. There will be confidence in Him. He alone was able to keep us is our almighty Lord and King. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. And beloved, we live out of that glorious kingship. Revelation 5 verse 10, And has made unto us and has made us unto our God kings, and we shall reign on earth. The Catechism puts it this way, that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life, and afterward reign with him eternally over all creatures. Christ gives us a royal heart, so that we are enabled to live as kings in a state of freedom and victory. We do so for Christ and on his behalf. And each individual member of Christ exercises that kingly power and rule. Never may we use sin as an excuse. May never we say, I couldn't help it. Christ lives within you by the power of his spirit. He has conquered the power of sin and the devil. And that which rules in your and my hearts is Christ. The powers of sin broken. And though the old man is there and the old man executes tremendous authority and power and though we give in at times and we fall prey, the victory is seen in that God works repentance. God works true sorrow. And God gives us to know victory over the devil. As spiritual kings, we triumph. Ye have overcome the wicked one. 1 John 2 verse 13. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Galatians 5, verse 24. The king rules. And the war is intense at times, but it's already been conquered. And we look forward to the wonder by which we will afterward reign with him eternally, free from sin in the glory that awaits. Beloved, we have a Savior who is Jesus the Christ. What do you think of the Son of God? He is the Christ. He is my prophet, my priest, and my king, who even now is preserving and keeping me in the joy of my salvation. And what does it mean for me to be a Christian? It means that I'm joined to Him, and I know that the Son of God has come, and that the Son of God has given me an understanding And I know Him that is true. And I know that I am in Him that is true. Even in Jesus Christ. What a glorious confession. Never separated from Jesus Christ, my Lord. And that though I die, death will be a means to bring me even into greater enjoyment of that fellowship without the bondage of sin. Beloved, walk with Him. Keep yourselves from idols and live as Christians 
knowing the victory that is in Him alone. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the wonder by which Thou hast given us faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And strengthen us that we might live more and more in the wonder of that work on our behalf, celebrating the wonder of salvation that He earned and preserves for us by His Spirit, and that we might know the joy and the hope of our salvation as we live as prophet, priest, and king. Amen. We turn to Psalter number 303, based on Psalm.